Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm Jeremy Heiner. And I'm Sass Elisha. And we are so excited to bring you Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Jeremy and I are very passionate about education. In these episodes, we're going to talk about clinical anesthesia topics. We'll talk about case management, pharmacology, critical events, and the most up-to-date topics in a power-packed and very concise episode. So get ready, take some deep breaths to pre-oxygenate yourself, because it's go time. It's go time. Okay, so Jeremy and I want to tell you a little bit about our new format. We're going to be publishing two podcasts per month. And we're going to start this podcast series focusing on case management and also crisis management. Now, we're also going to do other series on differing topics such as airway management or shock, pharmacology, and other things. CRNAs have asked us to produce case management information. And we want to provide you with information and podcasts that are about anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes. So that way you can listen while you're setting up for that particular case. And we're also gonna include information for students, clinical topics that may appear on the NCE exam. Backed by research, Jeremy and I believe in reviewing with you principles of crisis management. Now we've got a special treat for you. We have created crisis checklists or crisis yeah or crisis checklists and we want to give them to you for free so in this shock series we're going to start out with a a shock episode today we're going to we're going to review differential diagnosis the rationale for treatment and the mechanism of action of the medications used to treat the crisis later on we'll give you information on how to get these checklists Okay, so we're going to start our shock state series, and again, we will use crisis checklist. We're going to be reviewing the six shock states, 
Now, you can look at a definition of shock, and there's some very complex ones. However, if you want a very simple uh, definition, and Jeremy and I are very into simple. We like the simple. Inadequate oxygen delivery to the tissues. So the mechanism by which that oxygen delivery decrease, that the mechanisms certainly uh, differ. Now, you can think about the cardiovascular system as the tank. And we like to think about the tank as intravascular volume. Next, we have the pump. The pump is the heart. And then lastly, we have the pipes or the vasculature, which distribute blood to the tissues. This is the way that we differentiate. And you can look at shock. And this way, in terms of your mind, it doesn't seem that difficult. So let me define that. When you have a tank that's low or your intravascular volume that's low, we're talking about hemorrhagic shock. Going to the pump, if the pump is inadequate, two shock states that are associated with that are cardiogenic shock, as someone maybe an example is someone having an MI, or cardiac compressive shock, such as cardiac tamponade. And then lastly, the pipes. So what happens in the three shock states that are distributive shock states? We have profound vasodilation. And those include neurogenic shock, anaphylactic shock, and lastly, septic shock. All right, so we're gonna be, begin this particular shock state with a case. And this case actually happened to me several years ago. It was a 68-year-old male, and he was having a general anesthetic for a laparoscopic colectomy. Just as, as far as history-wise, he was ready to go for surgery. There were no allergies. He had diabetes and, you know, he was NPO. And I remember after induction and intubation, they started surgery. And it wasn't about, it was during surgery, about 30 minutes into the surgery. And I was giving a break to a CRNA. And the CRNA told me that, you know, he was hemodynamically stable. They'd given ANSEF. They'd recently just given some rocuronium. Well, as soon as I started giving the break, I noticed that the peak inspiratory pressures started to increase. They were around 26, 27, and they went up to 37 all of a sudden. And then I looked at the tidal volumes, and the tidal volumes had gone down by like 30, 40%, down from you know 480 to 500, down to 300 milliliters. And then I looked at the end tidal CO2 waveform, and there was a prolonged expiratory limb. Now, immediately, I didn't think of shock. Immediately, I thought of, okay, there's problems ventilating. His vital signs were metastable. They weren't necessarily stable. He, he kind of had some hypotension going on, you know, high 80s over 40s or 50s for his blood pressure. His heart rate started to go up a little bit. He was still satin okay, around 97%. So I wasn't immediately getting really nervous, but... Definitely, I was on alert. And so that was kind of the clinical scenario. A little bit of hypotension, some peak airway pressure increases, and end tidal CO2 waveform changes. All right, so SAS, now that I've painted this picture and given you this case, what would you do in this situation? Yeah, so the first thing that's concerning to me is the peak airway pressures going up. Of course, and you know, the SAT's good, as you said, it's, yeah. you know, 97, but you know, in... A, you know, a couple of seconds, it could be significantly less. I would certainly listen to lungs to see why the peak pressures were elevated. 
to rule out things like bronchospasm, pneumothorax, um, endobronchial intubation, for sure. Okay, so we're looking for bilateral breast sounds and, and looking for abnormal breast sounds. Yeah, okay. exactly right. Yeah, so you know what? I, I did that. I actually did listen to the chest, and sure enough, I, I did hear wheezes. Yeah. So, you know, another differential you could throw in there is the potential for aspiration. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's definitely a differential diagnosis. So certainly I would start out by giving albuterol. I would really want to increase the gas to cause bronchodilation, but because the patient's blood pressure is so low, I would be really concerned about doing that. Yeah, I'd be hesitant to, to increase the volatile agent because, again, remember the blood pressure was around 88 over 44. Right. And so increasing that volatile agent, that's going to just going to drop that blood pressure even more. Right. And that's atypical for a di- not not absolutely impossible, but atypical for a presentation related to bronchospasm. Usually patients are light when that happens or they're just getting intubated and that reflex is caused. So I'm a little bit concerned and thinking about what else could it possibly be. And remember, bronchospasm isn't necessarily an isolated differential diagnosis. Or diagnosis. It, it could be caused by some other diagnosis. Wow. So could it be a shock state maybe? Maybe. And I, <laughs> I think we've already given it away because of the title of the episode. Yeah. But yeah, ultimately, this was an anaphylactic episode. Yeah. And it was the hypotension that really gave it away. The, the bronchospasm kind of solidified it. But the hypotension is what really gave it away. Okay, Sass, so, you know, we've just been talking about some of the signs and symptoms of anaphylaxis, one of the six shock states. Um, Why don't you talk to us and our audience about all of the signs and symptoms that could be associated with an anaphylactic episode? Yeah, and I like the fact that you said could because, of course, physiology doesn't read the, the textbooks, correct? Not always the same presentation. So when you look at the, the uh, definition, three criteria should be met for anaphylaxis. So the first is that it's a very sudden onset and a very rapid progression of signs and symptoms. So let me ask you a question. Was there anything that you did or the CRNA did and there was a, an immediate change within about five minutes? Yeah, th- that's kind of interesting. This case was a little atypical. Because, again, it happened around 30 minutes into the case. Now, the CRNA, who I was giving a break, had recently given some rocuronium uh, to redose. But, you know, the patient got rocuronium up front for intubation. They got ANSEF up front. Um, So, you know, I think this is maybe a little bit atypical. However, it's still within 30 minutes of the case start. So, depends on your definition of rapid. Okay, so other signs and symptoms. So we have the airway issues and the breathing issues. So the possibility of bronchospasm, angioedema, certainly desaturation in pulmonary edema. From the circulatory side, certainly we have severe hypotension, that vasodilation, as this is a distributive shock state. Decreased entitled CO2, if it's very severe or more severe, And if less severe, as in your case, uh, a shark fin or a prolonged expiratory aspect of the capnography waveform. And that's exactly what what I saw in the monitor. Dysrhythmias are possible. And then, of course, cardiovascular collapse, if it truly is and it's not treated. The last thing I would say are the skin and mucosal changes, such as flushing, rash, itching, or hives. 
Did you see any of those? And that's the funny thing. So usually that will really dial in a diagnosis of anaphylaxis. You see, you know, flushing, you see rashes on the skin. We didn't see that at all. Yeah. So skin and mucosal signs and symptoms can be very subtle or they can be absent. And they're absent in up to 20% of patients who develop anaphylaxis. So you may not see it. And if you're looking specifically for that to rule in that diagnosis, uh, you may not, you may miss it for sure. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim. And most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call them at 504-394-6557. So Jeremy, how did you make the diagnosis of anaphylaxis? Yeah, to be honest, it, it took us a little bit because I was going through what we like to call front shelf diagnoses. So I was going through, you know, is the patient light? Uh, is the patient in pain? What's causing this bronchospasm? And then again, I had that nagging hypotension along with it. And once I ruled out that they weren't light, they weren't in pain, I thought to myself, well, I'm going back shelf diagnosis here, and maybe it's anaphylaxis because an anaphylactic episode can cause a bronchospasm. Yeah. Now, Jeremy, we talk about front shelf and back shelf all the time. Can you um, describe that to our listeners? Yeah. So Sass and I like to talk about differential diagnosis, and we teach this to our students in our anesthesia program. And whenever anything happens, you think to yourself, what's the last thing that I did? And you use that as a decision point moving forward. And you think, what's the most likely thing that could happen? And that is a front shelf diagnosis. So we know in anesthesia, if there's hypertension, there's tachycardia, anything like that, you're thinking light anesthesia, you're thinking pain, those kind of things. Or you're not thinking pheochromocytoma? No, that would be an example of a back shelf diagnosis. Gotcha. Thank you so much for that. So again, here we had the bronchospasm. And, and like you said, usually with a bronchospasm, you're going to have a sympathetic surge. But we didn't see that. I didn't see that. We had hypotension with that. So I was thinking about it and, and we gave, whenever I have hypotension in the OR, what's the medication I give? It's either ephedrine or phenylephrine, let's be honest, right? So I gave several boluses of phenylephrine, tried a little of uh, ephedrine, and I really didn't get the bump in blood pressure that I usually see. So at that point, it was like, well, what am I going to do next? And I diluted down epinephrine. I diluted it down to 10 micrograms per milliliter, and I gave 20 micrograms and I saw a significant increase in the blood pressure. And you gave it for the treatment of blood pressure, correct? That's exactly what I did, yeah. Because at that point, I was kind of thinking anaphylaxis, but I wasn't sure. Again, I didn't see a rash on the patient. So I wasn't 100% certain that it was anaphylaxis. Yeah, so let's go over the checklist a little bit. So what do you do if you have a situation where you believe the patient is having anaphylaxis? So in worst case scenario, 
minimal to no blood pressure, calling for help, 100% oxygen, and as always, decreasing or turning off our anesthetic agents. In anaphylaxis, on our checklist, on every checklist known to man, the drug of choice is epinephrine. So Jeremy gave it to increase the blood pressure. However, epinephrine has a secondary effect when we're talking about anaphylaxis. It decreases the degranulation of mast cells. Mm -hmm. That's the breakdown of mast cells and an increase of histamine, which causes that massive vasodilation. So epinephrine, epinephrine, epinephrine. And that dose is anywhere from 10 to 100 mics, IV bolus, every one to two minutes. Yeah, and SAS, that's exactly what we did. We ended up giving epinephrine, and, and that's what saved us. We, we the, the blood pressure went up, the bronchospasm went away, and in addition to that, because of the hypotension, we started giving an IV fluid bolus. And it, you know, in the checklist, it says a 20 mill, milliliter per kilogram bolus, and we just opened up that fluid wide open. So now, SAS, we've made a huge point about administering epinephrine for an anaphylactic, anaphylactic episode. And I remember you talking to me about a study in the UK. Can you tell our listeners about, about that study? Yeah, because anaphylaxis doesn't happen often, but when it happens, it's very severe, as we talked about more back shelf, it's not always obvious to everybody, of course, what the diagnosis is. They did this retrospective study of people who had developed anaphylaxis and what they realize is in 64% of the cases, epinephrine was not given until the patient actually had cardiovascular collapse. That's incredible. Yeah. So they waited until essentially they had to code the person. Exactly. Suggesting to me that in a number of these cases, they really did not know it was anaphylaxis. So the take home is give epinephrine early. Yeah. If you suspect anaphylaxis. Identification, early identification, and early treatment with pretty much anything that happens in the operating room. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. All right, so now let's talk a little bit about more of the treatment for anaphylaxis. And there are several adjunctive medications that, that we could potentially give. And, you know, specific to our case, once the epinephrine was helping and we had more of a handle on this was anaphylaxis, then we did give Benadryl. We gave 50 milligrams IV. It's an H1 blocker. We gave Pepsid 20 milligrams IV, an H2 blocker. We gave the Benadryl first, and then we gave the, the H2 blocker second. Uh, we also did give hydrocortisone 100 milligrams um, IV, and that's obviously not going to work right away, but you know we want to decrease the, epi the, the incidence of potentially anaphylaxis happening again by giving that hydrocortisone. Yeah, exactly. Those three medications are the standard of practice, very interestingly related to H1 and H2 blockers. Because with anaphylaxis, the amount of histamine that is released is so unbelievably massive, there is actually no science that suggests that H1 and H2 blockers truly improve the outcomes related to anaphylaxis. And then, of course, hydrocortisone, fantastic, stabilize those uh, mast cell membranes. However, as you know, and all of our listeners know, it doesn't start working for approximately an hour. So yes, it's a good thought, and it's on the checklist, and it may help 
for you know a secondary response. However, immediately it's not going to do much for you. All right, so Sass, how about other adjunctive medications? So I pretty much explained what we gave. Is there anything else that maybe we should have considered or that potentially could be given in somebody who's in a patient who's experiencing anaphylaxis? Yeah. So for instance, you know, you said that the blood pressure came up and came up nicely with several doses of, of epinephrine. Yeah, it did. However, if the case was that the blood pressure wasn't coming up significantly, another choice to increase vascular tone and bring the blood pressure up is vasopressin. It's on our checklist. It can be given as one to four unit IV push. Um, Realizing that when anaphylaxis occurs, the entire inflammatory cascade occurs. Cytokines actually decrease adrenergic receptor function. And therefore, sometimes a catecholamine, although epinephrine is, we've talked about the secondary effect, but epinephrine and using a drug that is an adrenergic agonist may not adequately bring up the blood pressure. So we have vasopressin. In addition, and this is kind of back down on the checklist, you could use glucagon. The dose is one milligram IV push every five minutes up to a total of five. The mechanism is interesting. It increases heart rate and contractility. Um, And it's most helpful in those patients who are beta blocked. So there's the indication for that. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. All right, so I'll say we had a pretty good grasp that this was anaphylaxis, but what really drilled home the point was a triptase level. And we didn't get that back for several days, but we did draw a triptase level and it came back positive a couple days later. And that's when we knew for sure that it was anaphylaxis. Um, again, we because we had treated with epinephrine, with fluid bolus, the H1, H2 blocker, the hydrocortisone, patient ended up doing really well. We finished the surgery, um, but the triptase level was what really solidified that we did have a diagnosis of anaphylaxis. Yeah. So triptase is a major protein contained within mast cells. And when the mast cells degranulate, of course, triptase is released. It's not a component or not something you should do immediately. The reason why is, A, you got to take care of the patient's circulatory issues. But in addition, triptase levels don't truly start increasing for about 30 minutes, and their peak is about one to two hours. So if you drew them immediately, you probably would see nothing and it wouldn't be positive. So starting at about 30 minutes, peaking at about one to two hours, and in about six to eight hours, 
it's gone. So you have that short window in order to draw that to see if it truly is anaphylaxis. Yeah, and, and I said we found out a couple days later simply because we didn't come back to the hospital for a couple days later. We had drawn, drawn those triptase levels, but again, it wasn't immediate. Yeah, I'm guessing you can't do a stat triptase level. Yeah, they probably didn't. won't get that back to you for a while. They absolutely did not. All right, so let's finish this up talking about some of the indications or some of the causes of anaphylaxis that, uh, that could cause... I guess, anaphylaxis in the OR. Yeah, so most of the drugs that we give when anaphylaxis occurs, true IgE-mediated anaphylaxis, a type 1 anaphylactic reaction, it's going to occur rapidly, anywhere from 5 to 10 minutes. So there's your cause and effect. We know there are a whole bunch of things. We're going to talk a little bit more about Sugamidex, but in terms of the medication that is most implicated, they are neuromuscular blockade just like you said yep. in your particular case. And that's what happened to that's what happened to me. Yep. Exactly. Right behind that is antibiotics, local anesthetics are possible, propofol. Uh, we have all you know all other kinds of things such as latex um, and and a number of anaphylactic reactions. It's just not known what actually caused them. Yeah, and I can see a whole list of medications that could potentially cause it. But if we're taking something away, Neuromuscular blocking agents are probably one of the major causes. Yeah. Uh, I pulled this study here um, from Sadler. In terms of neuromuscular blockers, 56% of anaphylaxis with neuromuscular blockers was blamed on rocuronium, 21% sucks, 11 VEC, and cisatricurium and pancuronium rounded it out at 12%. For those who you still use pancuronium. That's right. There you go. All right, so you had mentioned sucks or Sugamidex. Sugamidex and and we should talk about Sugamidex um, because there is some incidence of anaphylaxis with Sugamidex. Yeah. So the incidence incidence is probably really really small. Um, I have a study here uh, 29 instances per 1 million patients. So a very, very small, it's a 0.0029%. However, when you, and that's at the two milligram per kilo dose. However, there's another study here that was showing that when you give the big dose, 16 milligrams per kilogram for rescue, as you always talk about related to the airway, um, the incidence is dramatically increases to almost one in 300 patients. That's significant. Very, very. All right, so we just talked about the incidence of anaphylaxis with Sugamidex, but how, SAS, does Sugamidex influence how neuromuscular blocking agents may cause anaphylaxis? So it actually doesn't. So the, let's put this into perspective. The neuromuscular blocker goes in, the amino steroid, either VEC or ROC, it's going to go in. It's going to cause that reaction. There's degranulation. Because that process has already started and is moving, if you were to give Sugamidex to inhibit the rest of that uh, vecuronium dose or rocuronium dose, because the train has already left the station, it does not alter the course, as many people believe it does. However, there may be one benefit to doing that, and that is the reversal of neuromuscular blockade, 
having people start to to breathe spontaneously, and then having that negative intrathoracic pressure to increase venous return and hopefully help you to bring up the blood pressure. Okay, great. So Sugamidex not going to reduce the the cause of anaphylaxis from neuromuscular blockers, but may help increase the blood pressure because the patient might start breathing again, increasing intrathoracic pressure. Exactly. Okay, fantastic. Okay, Sass, so now let's, uh, we've had a great conversation so far. Let's finish it up by talking about antibiotics and the incidence of antibiotics causing anaphylaxis. So both cephalosporins and penicillins, and that's what we're, you know, there are a lot of other antibiotics, of course, that can cause an allergic reaction. But when we're, someone has a penicillin allergy, well, you know, can we give them ANSEF in the operating room? So what is the cross sensitivity? Penicillins and cephalosporins both have that beta-lactam ring structure, which is responsible for the hypersensitivity reaction. It's estimated that the incidence of anaphylaxis associated between cross-sensitivity with first and second generation cephalosporins and penicillin is only about 1%. There is essentially 0% cross-reactivity for penicillin and third and fourth generation cephalosporins. So we, as we always talk about, if someone has an allergy to an antibiotic or really anything, what is the nature of the allergy? What happened? Um, and then certainly being most conservative because, of course, anaphylaxis, we never want to see it and is potentially life-threatening. Well, that was a great explanation. And that rounds it out for our first episode on anaphylaxis. Listeners, thank you so much for being here. Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. All right, CRNA Nation, that's it for this episode. Remember, keep ventilating, and we will catch you on the next episode. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low- and middle-income countries to go to educational programs, 
buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.